Today's episode of Dead Rabbit Radio contains content that is highly disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Today we take a look at one story that has two branching paths. First off, is there any truth behind the rumors that there is a tree in Florida that can never be cut down? And then we look into the true crime story that inspired the rumors and legends about the devil's tree. Is it possible that the very first serial killer in the state of Florida has somehow summoned Satan today on Dead Rabbit Radio? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day, too. I hope you guys have some awesome plans for the weekend. Hope you guys have a happy Halloween. That's coming up, too. Someone who I know always has nothing but happy Halloweens. He's stuck in a time loop. It's the only day he lives over and over again. Everyone give a round of applause to one of our legacy Patreon supporters. Give it up for Alex Bostwick. Woohoo! yeah, come on in. Come on, he's still wearing his Halloween outfit from when he was six. He's like, uh... Help me out of this hellish, happy Halloween landscape. Nah, we're not going to do that. But Alex, you're going to be the captain or pilot this episode if you guys can't support the Patreon. That's totally fine. It really is. And I mean that. Just help spread the word about the show. That helps out so much. If you get any value from this show, please help spread the word of Dead Rabbit Radio. And before we get started, I want to say this too. Back in September, we started the 90 Days to a Better You Challenge. That is a totally free thing. It's not like you got to buy a booklet or send me your email address or anything like that. It's just a challenge for me and a challenge for you to be better off 90 days from now, right? We started in September, though, so basically we're 60 days in. My whole thing was about finding balance, finding a sense of balance in my life. And today... I went to a yoga studio for the very first time in my life. I went to a yoga studio, and it was like a weight training yoga, and it was really cool. I felt totally out of place, right? You'd probably take three or four of them together. <laughs> probably equal my size. But uh, I did it. I did it, and it was fun, and I'll be doing it again, and I'm really sore. But this is part of it. This is part of what I want to do, right? I'm trying to find a sense of balance, not just physically, but mentally as well, right? So... That's what I'm doing for my 90-day challenge, and I encourage you guys. You know, we basically have 60 days left of this year, give or take. And I want you guys to make a pledge to yourself right now to be in a better place when that clock strikes midnight on New Year's Eve than you are right now. Than you are right now listening to this episode. Take those steps, whatever they are. It's always good to challenge ourselves. It's a New Year pre-resolution. Let's be better than we are right now before 2023 begins. Alex, let's go ahead and start off by tossing you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're going to leave behind Dead Rabbit Man. Drive us all the way out to Florida. <laughs> Alex is driving the old-timey Jason Jalopy all the way out to Florida. Specifically, we're headed out to Port St. Lucie in Florida. It's a typical neighborhood in Florida, I assume. I didn't look it up. I didn't look it up on Google Earth. I'm sure it's totally nice. Port St. Lucie, Florida. As we're driving through town, I'm giving you directions. Head over towards the C-24 Canal. That's where our true destination is. Oak Hammock Park. This is a popular park. You'll often see people having a picnic. They'll be on a boating adventure, and then they'll be like, Pull over there, Jimmy. Let's go get some 
biscuits or something. I don't know. I don't know what sailors eat. But anyways, they're trying to fend off scurvy. They're drinking a bunch of orange juice. It's a popular park for fishermen and boaters in the area. Families will come to this park. But in the middle of Oak Hammock Park, there is a tree that locals know as the Devil's Tree. (laughs) It doesn't sound like it's something they put in the tourist guide. Well, maybe for October, right? But for the rest of the year, it's not something that they want to attract attention to because the Devil's Tree has earned its reputation. Longtime listeners of Dead Rabbit Radio are like, whoa, 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 you covered this before, dude. You covered this. And it sounded familiar to me, so I went and I checked my show notes. And sure enough, back in 2019, I did a story about a tree called the Devil's Tree. But that one was in New Jersey. So there's at least there's at least two trees in America that are both named the Devil's Tree. And while I'm talking about this, again, if you listen to that original episode... You're going to notice some similarities, and we'll discuss those as well, but the one in New Jersey... Well, let's get started. Let's get started here. So we're standing next to the Devil's Tree. I'm a couple feet away. You're all leaning against it. You're like, this isn't the Devil's Tree that I'm touching, right? And I'm like, no. You're, t- you're slowly getting cursed by the Devil's Tree. The Devil's Tree in Oak Hammock Park. Here are the legends surrounding it. One. Late at night... If you happen to be at this picnic place late at night, you may run into a group of hooded individuals walking around this tree. People say that what you're witnessing is, is a satanic ritual. Local Satan worshippers will... No, so here, here's again... Before I get started on this, you're like, Jason, is this literally in the middle of a picnic park? Like, is there, like, a slide and then, like, a couple of tables and then all of a sudden there's a satanic ritual? From what I can gather, this tree is in Oak Hammock Park, but Oak Hammock Park isn't, like, a city park. Like, yeah, people will have picnics and stuff there. You're all barbecuing up some food and some guys are like, behind you. And you're like, ah, they're bumping into you. The hot coals, the flames of Satan are shooting through your hot coals. They're burning your burgers, man. I think it's kind of farther off. But Satan worshippers will walk around this tree chanting and performing satanic rituals. So if you, if you are just there to have like a 4th of July picnic and you see a bunch of Satan worshippers... You might want to leave. They also say that sometimes if you go out... here, Here's really where you get to pick your poison. Here's really where you get to choose where you're at. You're sitting there. You're trying to eat a delicious burger. And you can either stumble upon a coven of Satan worshippers. Or the other thing that people spot here is the Ku Klux Klan. So, I mean, again, like, I, I would be nervous around either group, right? I'd be nervous around either group, but I mean, I I don't I don't, I don't even want to go on record of which one I would rather pick, which one I'd rather run into. But the Saint worshippers or Ku Klux Klan are sighted around this tree. Now, let's look at the Devil's Tree in New Jersey. We see similarities. They also say that that tree attracts Saint worshippers, and that tree attracts the Ku Klux Klan. And I've heard stories about that on places that I've done ghost investigations at. Dyer Lane in Alberta. We've talked about it several times on this show. The legends were always, you might run into Satan worshippers, you might run into the Ku Klux Klan. So it's interesting, right? We have these similarities. Then the other stories that surround the Devil's Tree in Oak Hammock Park. And it's this huge tree. It's a 150-year-old tree. 
It's massive, right? It's not like a little sapling. I should have given you a little bit of description in the beginning. I just got so much to say about this episode. I'm trying to keep it formatted. This is a very fascinating to me. I love this story. Let me get back on track. Let me get back on track. I'm so sore. I'm so sore. Actually, all this lactic acid is getting in my brain, too. Let me get back on track. So we have Ku Klux Klan. We have Saint worshippers walking around the street. We have similarities in New Jersey with their devil's tree. This tree also has stories about it that you can't cut it down. There have been multiple attempts to remove the devil tree from Oak Hammock Park, and axes have split. Axes have broken when people are slamming against this tree. When people try to use chainsaws on this tree, the teeth would break on the chainsaw. Which sounds incredibly dangerous, right? They just don't fall off. They're flying around at hundreds of miles an hour. And then there's also scorch marks, apparently, on this tree where people tried burning it down. They wanted to destroy this tree. So you'll see wounds. You'll see cuts on the tree where people had tried to cut it down before. No dice. You see where there are scorch marks on the tree. Never burned down. Very similar to what we have in New Jersey on their devil's tree. But in Oak Hammock Park, there are public restrooms. I do not plan to do another episode about restrooms, trust me. There are public restrooms in Oak Hammock Park, and the story goes, and this is where we start to divulge from the Devil's Tree of New Jersey and where we're going to get into the story, this crazy story I'm about to tell you. This crazy story I'm about to tell you. In Oak Hammock Park, there's public restrooms. Late at night, because people do go there, right? It's kind of out of the way. People want to go and smoke and drink and not get caught or just party late at night. <laughs> not saying worshippers of Ku Klux Klan, just, you know, teenagers. You can hear the sounds of screaming coming from the women's restroom. Not just the sound of one woman screaming, which would be terrifying enough. The reports are that you can hear two women screaming, two different voices screaming through the darkness. And this is where the story of the Devil's Tree in Oak Hammock Park in Port St. Lucie, Florida, diverges from so many urban legends we've covered on this show, whether it's the Devil's Tree in New Jersey, which didn't really have any backing to it. I got most of that information from an article from Backpackerverse. There's so many places in America that have all these urban legends, like this high school's haunted, and this road is haunted, and this bridge is haunted, and we can never trace it back to a particular story. So we just have to go, maybe it's true, maybe it's an urban legend. But the story that started the story of the Devil's Tree is 100% true. It's the story of Florida's first Serial killer. Alex, let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the Carpenter Copter. We are headed up, up and away, and back in time. Hit that time travel button and send us back to the year 1972. It's September 1972, and this peaceful place has attracted the lonely soul known as Gerard John Schaefer Jr. He's a sheriff's deputy for Marin County. And he's walking through this forested area. He hears the birds singing in the trees. The sunlight glimmer through the leaves. 
He's walking through this remote wooded area, but he's not there to enjoy the natural world around him. He's walking towards this large tree in the middle of this forest with a shovel. And when he gets to this massive tree, this unnamed tree in the middle of this wooded area, he begins to dig. He doesn't have to dig long. Very, very shallow pit that he had previously dug. And he finds what he had previously left there. The corpses of two teenagers. He looks down at these bodies of these two young women that he had kidnapped, raped, and murdered. And then he crawls into the pit and begins to have sex with their dead bodies. Gerard John Schaefer Jr., a sheriff deputy for Marin County, is a sick man. But nobody really saw it. He hid it so well from the world. He was someone who, as a child, experienced trauma, and he learned to not let anyone know of the storm that was raging in his soul. He dealt with his trauma by turning it into a fetish. When his alcoholic father abused him, he became a sadomasochist, where he both liked to have pain inflicted on him. He would engage in autoerotic asphyxiation. He would cut off the blood flow to his brain while he was masturbating. And he also liked to hurt others. But it's easy to hurt yourself because you don't need anyone else around, right? You can just kind of do that. His need to hurt other people, well, that would take other people. So he had to figure out a way to gain access to them. Now in school, he was known, despite his best efforts to kind of be normal, he was known as a peeping Tom among the girls. When he was in high school, they said you pretty much had to stand with your knees closed. Otherwise, he was going to get down and look under your skirt. But back in the 60s, when he's going to high school, you know, that's just harmless fun. It wouldn't be the warning signs that we know today of someone who may escalate to violence to get what they want. A lot of times we see, when you look at a serial rapist and a serial killer, they start off as peeping toms. They start off as... Men who burgle women's houses to steal trophies, to steal underwear and bras and socks and shoes and things like that. And now we know you can catch a peeping Tom and possibly stop a budding serial rapist. It's very rare that someone just is a peeping Tom and never escalates past that. But after he left high school, when he's an adult, he becomes a cop. What more of a job could... I'm not saying all cops are obsessed with power, right? I'm not saying all cops just want to press a thumb on society. But some do, right? Some teachers are bullies. Some cops have an ego trip. Some, I'm sure some firefighters are jerks, right? He became a cop. He was a patrolman at the age of 25. He got married. He was still a creep. Though, just because you get married, just because you come a, become a cop doesn't mean that you're not a creep. It actually is a better cover for you. 
What happened, though? Luckily, his bosses were observant. They realized, well, they didn't have to be too observant. They were getting a bunch of complaints. He was pulling women over for minor reasons. And then doing background checks on them and finding out where they lived. And then calling them up and asking them out on a date. So the police department fired him. They said, okay, that's, <laughs> that's obviously, that's really creepy. You can't do that. But he was able to go and get another job in law enforcement after that. He went to the local sheriff's department and became a sheriff's deputy. And he was able to say, oh, yeah, my other job where I was the police department guy, I quit. And they never looked into it. They never checked it out. July 21st, 1972. Gerard is driving down the street and he sees two girls hitchhiking. Two teenage girls are hitchhiking. He picks them up in his squad car, and he goes, where are you going? And they're like, oh, we're going to head out to this area. And he goes, I'll drive you. But you guys got to realize that hitchhiking is very, very dangerous. Oh, yeah, we know. But it's the best way to ride. Ha, ha, And he is driving them in the squad car. And he takes them to where they want to go. At that point, Gerard goes, so is this where you guys are going to be staying? And they go, oh, no, no, no. We're actually going to Jensen Beach tomorrow. So Gerard goes, tell you what, I will pick you up tomorrow. I'll take you ladies to Jensen Beach. We can make a day of it. Now, I don't think that they really wanted to spend the day with a police officer, but it was a free ride. And if you couldn't trust the sheriff's deputy, who could you trust? The next day he shows up to pick him up. And he's in a civilian car. He's just wearing regular clothes. And the two girls, they think this is odd. They get an odd feeling about this. Well, how come you're not driving your squad car? How come you're not in uniform? And he goes, oh, I'm actually going to be doing some undercover work later tonight. So that is why I'm driving my own car and I'm wearing my own clothes. But I'm supposed to be a criminal going undercover. But ladies, go ahead and hop on in. Let's go to Jensen Beach. So they get in. They don't go to Jensen Beach. He drives them out into the middle of the woods. Once they get to this remote area, he tells them, I told you, hitchhiking was dangerous. And he forces both girls to walk through this forest until they get far enough away where no one can hear him scream. And he ties them up. He ties each of them up to a different tree and attached a noose around their necks. They're both completely trapped. They're both completely helpless. And worse than that, the way he has this all rigged up, because he's been fantasizing about this moment for decades. He has them tied up so they have a noose around their neck and they're restrained to the tree, but their feet are balanced on a large root. On each tree, he had this set up. He must have scoped this place out before bringing them to this specific area. Both girls tied up to these different trees. They were perfectly balanced on these large roots coming up out of the ground. And if they slipped, they would hang. So both girls are trying to keep their balance on these roots. Terrified. Out of their mind. They know that now if they make one mistake, they're, they're dead. And while they're standing there tied to these trees, trying to keep their balance, trying to keep their wits about them, Gerard tells them, 
ladies, I'm going to be honest with you. Both of you are going to get raped. And both of you are going to get murdered. But before he can do anything, before he can start to live out his fantasies, his police radio goes off. Because even though he was supposed to be on duty, he was supposed to be driving his squad car, he was supposed to be in uniform. He didn't want anyone seeing these two girls in this squad car on the last day they were ever going to be alive, right? He was thinking ahead. But he also had his police radio on him. He gets a call from the sheriff saying, you need to get into the station right now. I need to talk to you about something. So he tells the girls, I'll be back. Be careful, ladies. Don't slip. He got in his car and drove back to the sheriff's department. Two hours later, Gerard comes back to this remote area. And he's walking and he's so excited. Finally, all of his fantasies can become a reality. And when he gets to the two girls, they escaped. So Gerard realizes, they can obviously track it back to me. I'm a sheriff's deputy. They'll be able to describe me. Be able to describe my car. (laughs) I was driving my real car today. Oh, man. And he radios into the sheriff. Hey, listen. This was his actual quote. Quote, I've done something very foolish. You'll be mad at me. Unquote. And he told his boss that, listen, I saw these two girls hitchhiking. I wanted to teach them a lesson because hitchhiking's dangerous, right? Hitchhiking's so dangerous. Like, we all know it's dangerous. So I was just teaching them a lesson. So I drove them out to this area. I tied them up and I was just trying to scare them. Now, while that is happening, this girl comes bolting out of the forest. And people are like, where'd you come from? She has ropes attached to her. She's sweaty. She's screaming. And the cops are called. And when the cops show up, she goes, you got to find my friend. You got to find my friend. We got split up. We got kidnapped. We got tied to these trees. And I'm telling you, it took us forever to get loose. We so slowly were working out of those ropes that were binding us to the tree. And we knew if we slipped, we were dead. But you got to find my friend. We got, we split up. And so the police started looking for this other girl. And at one point, they see a girl swimming across the river. And they go, that must be the other girl. That must be the other girl. She also got away. Now, I don't know if they broke free at different times or if they split up. So both of them want to get captured. I don't know why they weren't found at the same time. Maybe they did just run away in different directions. But anyway, so both girls survived. And obviously, Gerard was sent to prison for kidnapping, at the very least. Then he tied these women up. They almost died. He threatened to rape and murder them. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen at all. Gerard was fired. And he was being investigated. But despite two witnesses pointing him out, able to see his photo and go, that's the guy, and him confessing to doing it, but saying it was just a a prank, bro, he was not immediately put in jail. But the sheriff's department did start looking into it. 
September 27, 1972. Two teenage girls in the area go missing. Susan Carroll Place, 17 years old, and Georgia Marie Jessup, 16 years old, were last seen with a man named Jerry Shepard. Susan Place's mom actually met Jerry Shepard. At one point, he was at the Place residence. She met him. She thought there was something odd about him. So odd when her teenage daughter and the friend were talking about hanging out with her, she actually went out and wrote down the license plate of Jerry Shepard's car. And when her daughter went missing and her daughter's friend both went missing, she let the police know, I think it's this guy named Jerry Shepard. Here's his license plate. The police check out the license plate number. Dude has an alibi. But for whatever reason, incompetence, I don't think this is a police cover-up. I don't, not going down that area, I just think this was incompetence. They checked the wrong license plate number. April 1st, 1973, a father and son are walking through a wooded area, looking for discarded aluminum cans. And they see a hole. It's not that deep. It's a little wide. And it's weird, it looks like the way that this hole is situated, that at least twice, and possibly more times, it looks like it was, something was buried and then dug up, and then buried and then dug up, and then buried and dug up, at least two times, and it could have happened more. They see this pit, and inside of it are human remains. So the father and the son call the police, the police show up, and what they discover is... Yes, it was human remains. It's the, basically at this point, two skeletons of two young women. Both of them had severed spines. Both of them had multiple broken bones. One of them had been shot in the jaw with a pistol. As the police continue to investigate this, right, obviously this is a crime scene. They notice on a nearby tree a tree that would soon be known as the Devil's Tree. There were markings on the bark. What the police figured out was either one of the girls or both of them were tied to the tree long enough for the rope to actually cut a groove into the bark. At this point, the police are kind of putting stuff together because, one, Susan Place's mom realizes they checked the wrong license plate number. She's able to find that out because Jerry Shepard wrote a letter to her daughter. She's able to backtrack the address. The police are able to match this address and match this license plate to Gerard. The idea that we have these rope markings on this tree where it looks like someone was restrained, possibly even hung, from this tree, similar to the case that was ongoing with Gerard, was another point in the call, was another big indicator that he was behind this. So when the police got a search warrant and they go into his house, they don't find a lot of evidence directly tying him to these murders. But they find a lot. A lot. Of short stories. Three hundred pages of self-written torture porn. 
he wrote these very, very detailed stories. Something that he called killer fiction. This is all fictional. Because this became a big issue at the trial. He goes, I'm allowed to write what I want to write, and I'm not glorifying the violence. I just wanted to write stories that would give people the point of view of a madman. But I'm not a madman. I can just write it well. 300 pages of self-written torture porn. A lot of it is about hanging women. They found a lot of softcore porn around his house, magazines, photos, and things like that. But even on the softcore stuff, he would draw in pictures of nooses around the women's necks. He would also draw these women urinating as well. He had some photos that he got from a friend of a real-life massacre from a Saharan village, which was photos of women in this village that had been disemboweled or mutilated pre- and post-death. When they're looking at these stories, he talks a lot about making his victims pee themselves. He talks a lot about visiting the bodies after they die. Some of these stories were about necrophilia. And again, when the police were looking at this and they could tell the bodies had been dug up more than once and then recovered and then dug up again more than once, and then you're reading these creepy stories about a guy who's fantasizing about having sex with dead bodies, the police aren't dumb. But will the legal system be? Because his big defense was, you have no evidence that I killed these two women because they believed that he might be responsible for nine other murders in the area. But they were only charging him with the two. They are only charging him with the two bodies that they found. And he says, I didn't kill Place and Jessup. I had nothing to do with that. The only thing you have on me is my writing. And there is nothing wrong with writing killer fiction. But he's found guilty. The legal system worked. And not to him, right? He felt that he was totally innocent on this. He was found guilty on two charges of killing these two young girls. He got two sentences of life in prison. And he is insistent, even behind bars, I did not do this. He began this weird campaign. If anyone ever called him a serial killer, he would sue them for defamation. Because he's not a serial killer. In fact, he hasn't killed anybody. So the second anyone in the media, newspaper, television, anything like that referred to him as a serial killer, he would sue you. The second thing that he was able to do was to publish his book, Killer Fiction. The stories that he wrote, you can read today. There's a version on Amazon, it's Kindle, it's like 10 bucks. But a hard copy of this book is like $100-$200. Because it's out of print at this point. You can buy the digital version. And you read the reviews, they're like this book. You can only read like three or four stories. It's super disturbing. Like it's the darkest literature. But you, it is there. You can buy it on Amazon. It's called Killer Fiction. So he had those stories published, and it's so funny, so he had his stories published, and then the foreword of Killer Fiction is written by one of my favorite authors, definitely my favorite true crime author, Colin Wilson. And Colin Wilson, in the foreword of the book, apparently referred to Gerard Schaefer as a serial killer. <laughs> Gerard sued him! Gerard sued him. He goes, you can't call me a serial killer, even though I'm publishing a book about all these killings, all these serial killings. They're not true. He actually sued the guy who wrote the foreword for the book. Now, none of these lawsuits were successful. Not a single one was successful. 
He was just saying, you can't call me a serial killer, I'm not a serial killer, but he's in prison for life. And I think deep down, he still thought he was a cop. Because he became a prison snitch. He became like the best prison snitch ever. He's snitching all these people out. And that makes him extremely unpopular from the get-go. They know he's an ex-cop. Now he's a snitch. He does end up, you gotta give him credit for this one, he does end up shutting down a child porn ring that was being ran by some pervert in jail. This guy was somehow doing that, and he got that guy shut down. So, bravo, there you go, Gerard. One one thing in your corner that's worth celebrating. But it all ended, his professional prison snitching career ended on December 3rd, 1995, when him and his cellmate got in an argument over who got the last cup of hot water. They were trying to make something. Maybe one guy was trying to finger paint, the other guy wanted to eat top ramen, but the last cup of hot water out of this water dispenser, they were, had a fight over it, and the cellmate was like, you know what? You murdered two women, water under the bridge. You're a professional prison snitch. Now you got my attention. Now I'm angry at you. But the last cup of water, he ended up stabbing Gerard 40 times in the face, the neck, and the body. Just over and over and over again. Obliterated one of his eyeballs. Slit his throat. And let him bleed out on the floor. December 3rd, 1995 should have been the ending of the story of Gerard Schaefer. But after he died... I don't know how this letter got out. I don't know how this worked. I don't know if the letter had been written beforehand and he had it like in his will. I don't know if if, if he mailed it. If he knew he was going to get stabbed in the face 40 times, so he's like, oh, I better put a stamp on this. After he dies, a letter went out. And a new edition of Killer Fiction was immediately published. The new edition contains this letter that Gerard Schaefer wrote before he died where he confesses to the murder of Place and Jessup, which everyone figured was true anyways. He finally confessed to the fact that he had murdered these two young girls. He also confessed to 30 other slains. He said, my first kill was in 1965. A full seven years before his first known victims, the two girls that he had kidnapped in the forest, who luckily got away. He claims to have killed 30 other women. Now, sometimes serial killers will beef their numbers up to be more of a badass. But remember, he did not let anyone know this until he died. So it wasn't about being the biggest, baddest dude in the prison. He denied it. He denied all of it until the day he died. And then after he passed away, 30 women. And to this day, the police actually believe the number is that high. There are bodies that they have found and women that have gone missing that they honestly think Gerard Schaefer had something to do with. He also, in this letter, admits that not only did he rape these women, not only did he murder these women, not only did he sometimes have sex with their dead bodies, sometimes he ate them as well. 
a totally insane, depraved man. And he is considered to be Florida's first serial killer. Someone who operated for almost an entire decade before he was caught. Who has 30 slains under his belt. Absolutely insane. The tree that Jessup and Place were found underneath is the devil's tree. Or is it? Because even now, when I did so much research on this story, I'm looking, you'll find versions where they're buried underneath the tree, right next to the tree, near the tree, a hundred yards from the tree. You'll find stories that say Oak Hammock Park wasn't established when the slains happened. You'll find versions where it was. So odd. This story is actually incredibly recent, and you can't find a lot of coherency between these reports. Now, obviously, when I'm looking at websites like hauntedplaces.org or theshadowlands.net, they're not super good on the details, right? But when I'm looking at news reports, when I'm looking at Wikipedia pages and things like that, even there, iffy on some of the details, and this is such a recent story. But whether or not they were buried next to the tree or 100 yards away from the tree, whether or not they were both tied up to the same tree or separate trees, these are all minuscule. The fact of the matter is is that two young women were killed near, at least near, the Devil's Tree in Florida. And necrophilia took place there as well. Multiple times, apparently. He kept coming back out to these bodies. Because it's almost like the last time he didn't even bother to cover them up. The father and son were just walking by looking for cans and they see scattered human remains in a pit. It's a fascinating story. It's terrifying. And it honestly makes the ghost stories seem quite tame. The tree can't get cut down. Satan worshippers showing up. Ku Klux Klan. I mean, obviously the screamings of the bathrooms, that is you would think that that would be the two girls... But it's one of those stories you're like, I don't know. It kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth when you're talking about this real-life murder that we can trace back. We know the names of the victims. We know the dates. We know all of this stuff. A lot of times when we look at these ghost stories, they're just urban legends. It's easy to talk about a boy who got a funnel put in his mouth because he might have never existed. I'm not worried about a fictional character have gasoline pouring down his gullet and set on fire. And I would say, listen, if the devil's tree in New Jersey, I think that was just a spooky tree that if you touched it, your hands got oily and there was like a pickup truck that drove around and just had all these layers of urban legend. Here we have something real. And I would say, if you were going to be able to infuse any area with massive amounts of negative energy, if you were going to be able to take any place on Earth and turn it into a nexus of evil... It would be a place like the Devil's Tree in Oak Hammock Park. I don't think that Gerard Schaefer was a saint worshiper. I don't think Gerard Schaefer had anything on his mind, any sort of ritual or any sort of grand scheme to bring about the old gods or anything like that. I think he was just a perverted freak. But if you're going to try to create any sort of void, any sort of portal, any sort of raw, uncontrollable darkness. What he did at this tree would do it. Right? I mean, like, just the unspeakable acts that he committed at this tree. Rape, murder, terror, right? Also, it's this not, it's not this 
sudden thing. These women were tied up for a long time. We don't even know, right? He didn't he wasn't around to answer any questions when he finally confessed to it. Who knows how long this went on for? Rape and torture and murder and necrophilia. It's a terrifying story. It's a horrible story. It makes the whole ghostly thing seem like it's in bad taste. It does. But if any place on earth is going to be haunted, it's the Devil's Tree in Oak Hammock Park. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great day. You love podcasts, the stories, the laughs, the unexpected turns. But when this episode ends, the silence starts. Not anymore. Audiobooks.com turns that silence into your next great adventure. With over 450,000 titles, from bestsellers to hidden gems, your love for listening just found its new best friend. And because you already know the joy of audio, we're giving you three free audiobooks to start your journey. Imagine your favorite podcast. Now with unlimited episodes. That's audiobooks.com. Keep the story going. Sign up for your free trial at audiobooks.com slash podcast free today. Because for podcast lovers like you, the end of an episode is just the beginning. That's audiobooks.com slash podcast F-R-E-E.